And take your scriptures and open with me to Genesis 45. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses there. In 1880, James Garfield was elected President of the United States. But after only six months in office, he was shot in the back in an assassination attempt on July 2nd. At the hospital, the doctor probed with his little finger to see if he could find where the bullet was. He couldn't, so he tried a silver-tipped instrument And he still couldn't locate the bullet. The president was transported back to Washington, D.C. to recover with the bullet still in his body. As the summer wore on, he grew weaker and weaker and weaker. Teams of doctors tried to locate the bullet, probing over and over and over again, but they still could not find it. They even asked a little-known gentleman at the time that was working on a little-known invention called the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, to come in. And he, like the rest, could not locate the bullet. The president hung on through July, through August, but in September he died. He didn't die of the bullet wound, He died of the infection that was caused by all that probing. So it is with people who dwell too long in unforgiveness. It is not the bullet of unforgiveness that kills, but it's the infection that comes on, the infection of bitterness, the infection of anger, the infection of resentment that eventually withers you and kills you spiritually. So as we look at Joseph's almost unbelievable act of forgiveness here in chapter 45, I want us to glean what we can from how Joseph was able to forgive his brothers for such a heinous act of hatred. Look with me at verses 1 through 15 in chapter 45 in God's word. God says to us, when Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him, he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. 
and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will, I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brothers, his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked to him. Lord God, I pray that you will speak to your people about this weighty subject and the thing that we struggle with so much, and that is forgiveness. Help us, Spirit. Enliven your words. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I love about God's word, I love about God's word, is that it never hides the sinfulness of the people found in its pages. It never goes out of its way to eulogize these people. Just pick any of them. Pick any of them. I mean, the easy one's David. Held high in God's honor, but he was a murderer, a liar, an adulterer. He was not a good father. He was greedy at the end of his life. Moses, unfaithful, angry murderer. Peter, Faithless, sinking in the water, cowardly, denying Christ. James and John, hot-headed, judgmental, angry people. Abraham, as we've seen, we could put many, many descriptors there, but liar and doubter will suffice. Isaac, bad father, favorer. Jacob, deceiver, cheat. God's word is brutally honest about people. That's why when we come to Joseph's incredible forgiveness of his brothers, we cannot doubt that it's genuine. That is our temptation, isn't it? We go, okay, yeah, it says this, but there's no way that deep in that long of a pain and hurt can just be wiped away. There has to be something else going on besides that in his heart. But I'm here to tell you, it's not. There's nothing in the narrative that points to him harboring secret resentment or bitterness or a hint of a plan to seek revenge. What we have before us is authentic, heartfelt forgiveness. We see it through his words in verse 5. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You know what he's saying? Don't beat yourselves up. 
accept this forgiveness. We're going to talk about that next week, accepting forgiveness. Accept this forgiveness. Secondly, in his emotion, weeping in verses 2 and 14, it shows it's just not words. This isn't drummed up. These aren't empty words. Third is desire for relationship in verses 9, 10, 13, and 15. Move down here, all of you. You know, one of the symptoms of unforgiveness is distance, isn't it? Just keep this person as far away, or these people as far away from me as possible. And then his generosity in verses 10 and 11 come down to Goshen. Goshen has negative connotations because of Exodus, because they're in slavery there. But right now, it is the Garden of Eden of Egypt. Come down and plant yourselves back into the Garden of Eden. These are actions of a forgiving heart. So today, we want to lean in on that. We want to press in on that. Press in on Joseph's heart and learn what we can about how do you forgive like that? Because we all have these nuggets or boulders in our heart of unforgiveness. So we're going to press in on Joseph and learn about what, how he forgave. But first, before we do that, we want to look again very briefly that and say again that this was a plan for forgiveness on Joseph's part. This was a plan for forgiveness. I'm not going to spend much time here because we said a lot already in the preceding chapters. But we have to say once again that Joseph had a plan all along to bring his brothers back into relationship with him. In other words, Joseph had already forgiven them when they showed up at his court. Let me say that again. Joseph had already forgiven them when he looked up and noticed that they were there. His plan over those four chapters we've been reading was to bring them to a decision point, bring them to a place, a moment. And we talked more expansively about that last week with their harsh visit and then the generous visit and then the silver cup moment. But the point that I want to stress is Joseph had a plan to forgive, to stir their memories, their consciences, their hearts, to bring them to a point, a place, where they would have to make a decision again, as we talked about last week, are they going to abandon Benjamin and go back like they did 20 years earlier? It was a perfectly well-crafted and executed blueprint to lead them to that, this singular moment. When Judah steps up and says, I know we're all guilty. We're all guilty. But I'll pay. Right? Remember that last week? We're all guilty. Yes, we're guilty. But I will pay. I will stay. And that was it. Judah was a willing, innocent, sacrificial substitute. Joseph was a willing, innocent, sacrificial substitute, which wonderfully foreshadows the Father's perfectly planned, crafted, and planned blueprint for our salvation. Right? I mean, if you 
One of my favorite Bible verses is Galatians 4.4. When the time had fully come, God sent man, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Those six words, those first six words, indicate that God had a plan. When the time had fully come, God had a plan. Jesus' birth, life, and death and resurrection was perfectly well-crafted and executed plan of redemption. Jesus, like Judah, was willing. He willingly stepped up, as our public reading just, to- just spoke of. I laid down my life. No one takes it from me. I laid down of my own accord. I'm willing to go step forward. Jesus, like Judah, was innocent. You have to memorize scripture. Hebrews 4.15. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He had no sin to be punished for, unlike you and me. He was perfect in God's sight. Over and over, we read again in the Gospels, God saying, This is my son whom I am well pleased. Yet to fulfill God's plan, he became guilty for us. Jesus, like Judah, was sacrificial. One day Jesus said to his disciples, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus had absolutely no debt to pay. No sin to be punished for. Yet he sacrificed himself on our behalf. And Jesus, like Judah, was a substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is that substitutionary atonement. That is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer here, God's plan was for Jesus to die for your sins. He was punished. He was punished so that I, and if you call yourself a born-again believer, so that you might be forgiven of your sins. Forgiven of your sins. Not long before she died in 1988, a moment of surprise and candor on television, Marganita Lansky, I don't know if any of you know her, was one of the best known secular humanists of that era, said this, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Because of what Christ has done, we do. We, he had a plan to return good for evil. He had a plan to return good for evil. Author, I mean, Archbishop Temple famously said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And that's what we're dealing with here in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're dealing here with Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. He's returning good 
for evil. But how did he do it? That is the question that has weighed heavily on my mind this week as I was pouring over this scripture. How was Joseph able to do this? If you or anything like me, you struggle with forgiveness. Large and small, you struggle with it. How is he able to fall on his brothers and kiss them and weep and want them near? How did Joseph learn to forgive such a huge debt? Perhaps that's your question of the text today. He's forgiving 20 years taken from him in slavery, in dungeons. It's an even grander forgiveness than even Esau forgiving Jacob. You remember when we, when we came upon that text a couple months ago, Esau wrapping his arms around Jacob, right? I think this is even grander than that. I mean, you have Jacob up there with Uncle Laban, you know, living a pretty good life. Here we have Joseph, who's been in dungeons, who's been in slavery, who's been accused of adultery, sold by his own flesh and blood into slavery. How could Joseph forgive such a great injustice done to him? Perhaps that's your sticking question today. I know it's mine. How can he do this? In a group this size, there have to be some that have endured some pretty big hurts. There have to be. At the Gospel Alliance last Saturday, it was in, the theme was church planting, and in the Q&A session, someone asked, what makes uh, Maine so hard to, to plant a church? And various people said things, and then, the pastor down in Pittsfield, Bill Johnson, who's been there 30 years, spoke up. And he said, there's, a very, there's, there, there's something hidden. There's something hidden in rural Maine. And that is, there's a very high, an abnormally high rate of child molestation in Maine. Very high rate, well above the national average. A barrier of hurt and pain, hard to forgive. How do you even begin to forgive something like that? How do we learn to forgive not just those huge hurts, but the little day-to-day pains and hurts and slights? Those that happen between friends, between family members, between spouses between people in churches like this. How do we learn to forgive? Charles Spurgeon, speaking on forgiveness, said this, I wish, brothers and sisters, that we could imitate the pearl, the oyster pearl. He said, a hurtful particle intrudes itself in its shell, and this is painful for the oyster. It cannot eject the evil, So what it does is it covers it with a precious substance extracted out of its own life by which it turns the intruder into a pearl. 
He then goes on and says, Oh, that we could do so with the hurts that we receive from our fellow Christians, so that pearls of patience, gentleness, and forgiveness might be bred within us by which we would otherwise be harmed. So to use Spurgeon's language, Joseph coded the hurt and pain of his brothers, what his brothers inflicted on him by keeping two things in the forefront of our minds. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on today. There's not a third point on your outline. Put a line through that. There's two things that I want to spend time on. Joseph coded the hurt and pain his brothers inflicted on him, first of all, by thinking about things in a grander way. There was a grander purpose in mind here. Joseph was able to return good for evil because he kept God's grander purpose in mind. And this is one of the hardest ones, brothers and sisters. This is a hard one. Look with me at verses 5 and following. There Joseph says, And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. That's an underliner right there. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. That's remarkable. You know, we read this, and we, we just go right from chapter 44 right into chapter, chapter 45, and you know, we have a reading plan, and, and we have to read these three chapters today, so we're going to get through this. Oh my goodness, people. This is remarkable what he is saying. What he is saying and what he will say in about five chapters and repeat again is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. James Boyce writing on this says, Nothing is more characteristic of Joseph than his ability to relate everything that happened to him to God. And there is our learning for today. We have to learn to relate all of our experiences to God. What Joseph is able to do is to see the good that came out of an evil act. To be able to keep his eyes on God and his purposes and not on ourselves. And not on himself, his self-pity, his self-absorption, his self-centeredness. Because that's what hurts normally do for us. Is they, they take our eyes and glue them on ourselves. God actually uses the terrible things in our lives towards his good purpose. This is one of the greatest mysteries in Scripture, brothers and sisters. This is. And as we work through this, and as you leave those doors back there, I am sure and positive you are not going to be satisfied. It's just the way it is. God's providential sovereignty over everything, even 
evil. I call it the James-Job tension. James-Job tension. God is good and not the author of evil, James 1. Yet he is sovereign over everything, Job 1. God does not tempt people to sin, James 1. But God uses sin to produce good, Job 1. James 1 teaches us that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadow. God has absolutely no hand in sin. Can't be clearer than that. Yet, there is that throne room scene in Job 1. Have you considered my servant Job? God is clearly in charge of everything there. He allows Satan to tempt Job, but God is not the cause. He limits Satan's power, but has no hand in it. God does not get the blame for any evil done to Job. Yet, he is sovereign over it. God is not responsible for any evil in Job's life. Yet, he works incredible good through it. God, that should make you sit up. God works good through it. Proving to Job and the rest of Christians since that, and here's the big, one of the big headlines of Job, love for God exists without its benefits. There's a hint of where we're going in about a year and a half when I preach through Job. Love for God exists without benefits. But here we get into trouble when we try and make sense of the perfect of, of perfectly logically of how this can be. And, and we fall off, as John said today, it's a wonderfully, we fall off the horse either to the left or the right when we try and make sense of this. We either end up diminishing his sovereignty, like Harold Kushner did in his famous book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. If you have that book, throw it out. His conclusion is, learn to love and forgive God despite his limitations. That's his conclusion. He can't be sovereign. But learn to love him and forgive him. Or we diminish his goodness. We either diminish his sovereignty or we diminish his goodness. And that is what is born out of our why questions when bad things happen. Why did God allow this? What we're on the edge of and what we're heading down towards is God isn't good. We're going to unpack this more fully when we reach chapter 50, but it suffices to say here that Joseph's ability to forgive is keeping his eye on what God is doing. His ability to forgive, what we see here, is he's keeping his eye 
on what God is doing, not himself. Joseph was able to sift through how God is working in evil circumstances. And by doing that, it helped his heart stay soft and ready and willing to forgive. I don't know what hurts and scars there are in your life. Maybe it's a coworker who throws you under the bus or a dear friend who abandons you or a sibling who cheated you out of love or a harsh or absent mother or father or an abusive relationship or rape or incest or molestation. I don't know. But what I do know, because God's word says it three times here, is that one of the ways God works forgiveness in your heart and in my heart is through believing the hard truth that what they meant for evil, God will work towards good. It's not easy. (laughs) No way. But it gets your eyes off your hurt, off your pain, when you're looking at God. Is it fast? No. No. It's not instantaneous. Like most things in the Christian life, it's, it's a process. Joseph had 20 years to ponder this. Is it guaranteed? Yeah. Yeah. It's guaranteed. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things God works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God will work towards good in all the circumstances of your life. Yes. I got an email from the Tremont Congregational Church on Thursday. On Thursday of this week, talk about the providence of God. I've been in contact with them, encouraging them that our church is praying for them and if anything we can do for them. And and here's what it read in part. Thank you so much for continuing to keep our church in your prayers. And now with Cassandra's cancer, we pray that the enemy, what the enemy means for evil, God will use for good. This week I get that. Now, I don't know what good could possibly come out of this, where the previous, chap, the previous pastor has been convicted of child pornography. Their next pastor has stage four cancer. We're kind of in this situation, in, in what, how could God possibly in, work good here? I don't know. I don't know. How can God work good through the awful circumstances on Islesford? I don't know. Nobody knows. But God does. Philip Yancey wrote, Faith believes ahead of time what can only be seen by looking back. And that's where we are. That's where we live. And if you have unforgiveness and you're dealing with that and there's still those hard places in your heart, that's where you're living right now. 
How could Joseph possibly forgive his brothers? He looked to God's grander purpose to keep his eyes off himself. Because when we start harboring and, and nurturing those hurts and pains, the fruit of that is infection. Secondly, Joseph looked to a grander sacrifice. He looked to a grander purpose, and he also looked to a grander sacrifice. I want to remind everybody here that people get, got saved in the Old Testament, guess what? The same way they get saved in the New Testament. There's no other plan. It's always been one plan. Placing their trust in the promise of God. The promise of God. The Galatians 3 seed of God. The promise of the one to come. We have the benefit of knowing this side of the cross, the name of the person, Jesus, where he was born in Nazareth, what he did. He fulfilled the offices of prophet, priest, and king. How exactly, how exactly he crushed the snake's head, Genesis 3.15. It was through his death on the cross. Joseph did not have all those details. But he did have the promises, the promise of the one, the snake crusher that we've been talking about. That there one will come to crush the serpent's head at great cost to to himself because that promise says also in Genesis 3, the snake will what? Strike his heel. There'll be a cost. That there will be substitutionary Sacrifice. Joseph knew this. Joseph knew about this substitutionary sacrifice. Do you realize that? His grandfather told him the story of cutting those animals in two and putting them on either side. And and Abraham, ready to walk through and take on that curse, if I don't fulfill all the promises, kill me. But then God came down. And went through. He knew. He understood. Maybe in shadow and fog, but he understood. And when Judah stepped forward and embodied that, when Judah stepped forward and embodied that, it triggered all that emotion. His heart was soft already. His heart was soft already, people. At that moment, it could have gone two ways, couldn't it? Here, here he stands, steps up and says, take me. It could have gone two ways. And it would have gone different if I was Joseph. I would have brought the full weight of the Egyptian empire onto them. And it would have felt good. Have you ever had that opportunity in your own life to get somebody back? Think about it for a second. Yeah. Have you taken that opportunity to crush them? Maybe. To enact vengeance is mine. If 
if this had been on Joseph's mind, he would have done it. If his mind had been meditating on his pain and loss for the last 20 years, he would have done that. All that rage, all that anger, all, have you ever done this where, where you, you're driving and your mind goes to some, something that's going on and, and you're angry at a person or something and, and, and you go through scenarios in your mind? Have you ever done that? Honestly? I guess I'm the only one that's that depraved. You go through scenarios. You, re, you live it. You go, I, yeah, that's going to be good. Joseph had years in the dungeon to rehearse those scenarios. And had he, had his mind been there, he would have brought the full weight of the Egyptian empire down on them. But he didn't. He wept. He embraced. He accepted. He forgave. How? When Judah stepped forward and said, take me, not them, what happened? It reminded him of a grander sacrifice to come. Ted Tripp says, we have to be careful as to what captures your meditation. What is it that captures your idle thoughts? What fear or frustration is filling your spare moments? Will you just listen to yourself? Or will you start talking to yourself? Not letting your hurts shape you, but forming your hurts by the gospel. That's what we need to do. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves That is what prepares our heart for forgiveness, brothers and sisters. That's what prepares our heart for forgiveness. Because you will be preaching something to yourself. You talk to yourself more than anybody else. And so you will be preaching something to yourself. What is that something going to be? Is it going to be poor me? Or that poor person that hurt me. That was Joseph's choice. I'm pretty sure of it. Otherwise he would have enacted vengeance. Is it going to be poor me? Or poor Christ? Who paid for my sin? Is it going to be look at how I've been sinned against? Or look at how I have sinned against God. Is it going to be, look at how righteous I am? Or is it going to be how righteous Christ is and how that righteousness was treated? The gospel, when applied to your and my pains, my our hurts, will begin to melt your heart. Whatever difficult life circumstances you may may be in, we've got to take scripture at what it says. Capture every thought for Christ. Meditate on the situation that Christ was put in. Whatever wrong has been done to you pales in comparison to the wrong that was done to Christ. 
pales in comparison to the injustices done to Christ. Whatever pain you have experienced pales in comparison to the pain Jesus experienced. Do you realize as God, when that separation occurred, it was eternal separation. He experienced eternal separation. Whatever self-righteousness you feel because of your hurts, recall how perfectly righteous Christ was, yet, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Whatever sin has been done to you, you've done just as egregious things to other people. And Christ has absorbed those. That the same forgiveness that you have been freely given is offered to that person that hurt you. As you speak those truths into your life, as you preach the gospel to yourself, what happens is the gospel melts your heart. Like it did Joseph's. You want to forgive? You want to have your heart softened? You want to wash away the infection of anger and bitterness and resentment and vengeance and revenge? The degree to which that's Christ's sacrifice for your sin melts your heart is the degree to which you will be a forgiving person. Jesus taught, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's what he meant by that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Spirit, use it and soften us. In Jesus' name, amen.